<laughs> you can open your Bibles to Acts 17. That's where we're going to be. Acts 17. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 16 in just a minute. So can you know the unknown God? Uh, I think that's an important question to ask. It's a situation that Paul himself is going to deal with as he comes into the city of Athens. Athens and the nation of Greece at that time, is, is, these are areas of, of philosophy, uh, often considered the, the birthplace of Western culture. And so the way they think about things is the way we think about things. And considering an unknown God is something that has been a long question even in our culture and our Western civilization. Uh, it's kind of illustrated like this. You've probably heard some story of a bunch of people in a dark pit and there's some kind of animal in there and everybody's feeling the animal and it's, it's, it turns out to be an elephant and somebody feels the trunk and says, I think it's this and someone feels the tail and they all have these different ways that they feel what this object is in the dark. And the illustration is to indicate We'll see, we're kind of in the dark when it comes to God and all of us are kind of figuring it out for ourselves and, you know, feeling different parts. And it all doesn't really matter because as long as you're all just kind of seeking God and kind of figure it all out, we're all going to be fine in the end anyway. And so all of our differences are just the different things you're uh, in the dark feeling at that moment, like on the elephant. And what I want you to think about is Paul's kind of in that circumstance because in Acts 17 and verse 60, he comes into Athens and the first thing we're told is that the Apostle Paul is greatly distressed by all the idols that he sees. There's the worship of all kinds of gods go going on. And as he does in, in his typical fashion, the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue. He's reasoning there. And as he's doing these teachings, some of the philosophers of the day, the people of the city... They say, we would like you to come to our marketplace and tell us more about these strange things uh, that you are saying. Some of them are calling him a babbler. Some find him interesting. What we're told there in verse 21, one of the things that the Athenians like to do is just hear the new things around the empires. He would come into the city. Well, tell us what you know. And so as Paul comes in, he begins in an interesting place because in verse 22, he says, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. There's a line for you to think about. Now, I want you to notice Paul doesn't come in and go, Hey, you guys are a bunch of morons having all of these idols. And what's the matter with you? You can't be that dumb, can you? He doesn't do that. Notice he, he starts on common ground with them. I see you're religious. I see you're trying to figure it out. I see that you're trying to sort these differences out and you have all of these idols and gods all over the place. In fact, verse 21, I even passed by an altar that was inscribed to an unknown God. And so let me tell you about this unknown God that can be known. And what Paul does is he gives six truths about the known God. Six truths about the supposed God that you can't know. He's going to tell them, no, you can know him. And I want you to know these six things about him. Now, you might be surprised as we go through this this morning about the six things that he chooses to tell the people about God. And they might even be things that you didn't know about God yourself. 
as Paul slows down and says, let me instruct you about this great God that we worship. The first thing that he begins with is there in verse 24 where he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Let's think about that starting point truth about God. He just says, God doesn't need anything from us. What an interesting start point. Here is the God that I want you to know. He made the world. He made everything in the world. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And therefore, obviously, he doesn't live in little buildings. He doesn't live in shrines that are made by human hands as if he needed people to make things for him or to do things for him. It's kind of common in that day and time to think of your gods as you needed to do things for them, sure, out of service, but also out of necessity. And he's starting with this God and he is telling them, it is not that you satisfy the needs of God. He is not served by human hands. And the point is not, obviously, all right, everybody go home. God said we don't serve him. That's not the idea of not served by human hands. The scriptures are always saying that we are servants of his, but with the idea as if he needs something from us or we have to provide something for him. That is the picture that he's giving here, is that God doesn't need us to give him anything. Yet God is not sustained by our actions. You think about it. You know, his world would have been off axis if we were not all here today. You know, he just wouldn't know what to do with himself going forward. The vision of God that that. Paul wants the Athenians to think of him is a concern that when you have a mentality of an idle idea is that your God is very small. You serve him, help him, provide for him, satisfy him. He needs you to do these things. And Paul wants to start off by saying that's not who this God is. If God made the world and God made everything in it, then what does he need from us? If he made everything, what could he possibly need from us? What does he need from you? And that's why I love this beginning when he just says, if he made the universe, does he need your little building, your little shrine? Does he need your offering? Does he need these kinds of things as if he is dependent upon you or as if he needs for us to do something for him to continue on? Have a bigger vision of God. It is not that God is served in a way as if he needs something from us. Rather, quite the opposite, the second truth, as he continues in in verse 25, when he says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. And from one, he has made every nation to live over the whole earth 
and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Now, that is a phrase to really think about. After trying to get them to say, okay, your God is too small. You need to think bigger. He doesn't need you in terms of what you do for him. Rather, he gives you life. It's not that you give to him. He gives to you. And notice the wording that he gives there. When he says in verse 25, he himself gives everyone life breath and every thing or all things and just slow down and think about that concept for a minute it's not that we sustain god but god sustains us it's not that we give him life he gives us life it's not that We can give him anything. He gives us everything. This is an amazing picture of God. You and I are breathing right now because God says so. He gives life and breath and everything else that he didn't just name in those two words. That's an amazing thought. He gives life, breath, and everything else. And so how can we possibly think of a God where we are giving to him? He says, God is the giver of all things. We live right now because God says so. We are able to exist because God says so. And he wants us to understand that that's the very nature of God. You go back to the Old Testament and think about the book of Job. Because the argument between Satan and God revolves around the giving nature of God. The argument is this, that God, (laughs) you give Job his health, his wealth, his family, you give him everything. And because you give him everything, that's why he serves you. That's the whole of the argument is Satan says, take it all away. He won't do that anymore. And notice God is not sitting there going, no, I don't do that. (laughs) No, he does. He gives life and breath and all things. Everything that we have is because of God. And Satan understood that. God declares that, and here the Apostle Paul in his second truth about the character of God says, the reason we have anything, the reason why we breathe, we live, it's because of God. And I think that's important because sometimes we can lose sight of that as we try to explain the natural world and all that is in it and everything that is in it is a reminder that God is ultimately behind all of that. That God is ultimately the reason for these things. And that we have life and breath and the world continues to spin and people continue on is because God says so. In fact, I want you to look carefully there at verse 26 because he says something else that might be surprising to you as well in this truth about how God gives life and breath and all things. He says there in verse 26 that he is made from one all the, of every nation to live over the whole earth. But did you catch the rest? And has determined their appointed times 
and the boundaries by which they live. Let that soak in a minute. God's allowed all the nations and he has determined their appointed times and where they exist, their boundaries. Now you follow the Old Testament, you grasp that. You, you watch the rise and fall of Assyria and the rise and fall of Babylon, the rise and fall of Persia and Greece and Rome and on and on and on. God constantly saying these kinds of things. And I think it's important to zero in on this because this is something to help us have comfort in the power and the knowledge of God. You know, sometimes we can look around at the world and go, oh man, you know, these nations are getting out of control and the rise and fall of this and they're doing this and they're doing that. And look at our nation, it's doing this and it's doing that. Boy, the world's just all a mess and it's just, and here's Paul going, I want you to know something about all the nations. God has given their appointed time and their boundaries. God's ultimately got that figured out too. And so the idea here of Paul coming to these Athenians and telling them, you need to have a bigger vision of God. He gives life and breath and everything in it. And he is in charge. That's why I like to make the joke with you that you don't have God sleeping up there, waking up one day in 2021 going, wow, you know, I... Take a nap for a couple of years and look at what is going on down there. I just had no idea if I left you alone, you would do that. But sometimes we think of God like that. We look at him as if he's just not in control and he's over there on the side. And here's Paul saying, don't think of the true and living God like your idols. He gives life and breath and everything in it. And nations have their appointed times and their appointed boundaries. God is in charge. He is greater than you think. The second important truth about God. And then after he touches on that, notice where he moves with this. Verse 27. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of them. So here's God saying, all right. I give life and breath and everything in it. And I'm in control of all of these things that are going on. And I determine the boundaries and the times and all those kinds of things. Why are you behind all that? Well, here's the good news. God is not far away. God made the world so that what we would do is that we would seek him, that we would reach out to him. That's what Paul draws as a conclusion here as his third truth. God is in control. He gives life breath. He's in charge of the world. There's nothing that you're going to give to him as if he is sustained by us. And he made things this way so that you would reach for him. That as things go on in the world and his life continues on and you enjoy what is in it, that it would cause you to seek him, to find him, to reach to him, to locate him, that God has done that. But what is so magnificent about what Paul is saying is that you shouldn't think that you are reaching out to the unreachable God. And sometimes we have a vision of God that way. He is so high, so lofty, so far away that we may reach, but we can't reach him. He is too far away. He's too much. He is too vast. And it is good to have a grand vision of God. 
But what I want you to see is here he is saying, God made the world so that you would reach for him. But what did he do to assist that? He came near. That was the biggest thing that makes Christianity different from world religions. Is world religions are all about you trying to get to God. And God says, I will come to you. I will come down. And so I made the world so that you would reach for him. And then Paul goes, he's not far away from you. He's not unreachable. He is not in this dark pit that we're just groping around and have no idea what we're finding there. and Just don't have any clue who this God is. No, he has come near. And so that's the imagery in verse 27 to say these to these Athenians, these Greeks, at very end of verse 27, though he is not far from each one of us. He's right there. If you would seek him, he is attainable. He is reachable. He has come down and shown that in the life of Jesus. He is near to you if you would simply come to him. That is the image that he gives to us about our God. Our God has come down. He is near us. And he is not far from us. In fact, notice how he underscores that in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Notice what he then draws a conclusion and says, we're his children. Now think about who he's talking to. Athenians, Greeks, idol worshipers. And he says, just like your poets say, we're his children. We're his offspring. He's right there near us. And notice how he brings that line about. Did you see the beginning of this verse in verse 28, where he underscores what he said back in verse 25? Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. <laughs> just like he's rubbing on that. You exist for God. God gives you life, breath, and everything. In him we live, we move, we have our very being. Everything that we do is to be because of God. We have our being because of God. We are here because of God. We have jobs because of God. We exist because of God. We have wealth and possessions because of God. We have all things because of God. This is what he is underscoring to us. It's like you are enjoying the common grace of the blessings of God in this world. That all that you are able to do and all that you have and all that you exist is because of God. And what God is saying is, you're my children. You belong to God. What a picture. That God is trying to tell all humanity. You're my children. I made you. I gave you life and breath. I gave you everything. Everything you have is because of God. You live and move because of God. Everything is because of God. And to think that we belong to God and God did not make us like, like robots. It's going to make you do everything. But truly like children. That he would look upon his world and look upon his people. All humanity. And say, you're my children. Every single one. 
Now, sometimes what's so important about how we have a vision of how Jesus looked at the world and how he looked at people and seeing souls in people and seeing everyone as made in the image of God and the importance of every single human being because they are made in the image of God because they are children of God. And here the Apostle Paul underscores that of do you see who we are as humans? And when we erase that, that's when we see a lot of destruction, a reminder of who we are before God as children. Now, what's really great about this is Paul doesn't leave it right there and say, so God is creator of all things and you're his children. You know, good, good to talk to you. Let me talk to you later. There is a problem. There is a problem. We're all to be his children. We're all humans created in the image of God. But notice what else he underscores here as the problem in verse 29. Since then we are his offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Important fifth truth that's given here now. God wants us to come back. Here's God saying, you're my kids. You're my offspring. You're my children. Whole world. I want all of you. And his next point is, and I want all of you to be with me. I want to have relationship with you. I have come near to you and I want you to come to me. I want you to come back. And I want us to give the picture here that it is as if that image of Luke 15 of that famous parable regarding a prodigal son that we are pictured as a human who has walked away from the father. All of us have turned our back on God. All of us have wandered away. And notice the image that he uses here is he says, the problem is we have looked looked at the true and living God as if he were like these idols. He uses as if they have a nature, verse 29, of gold or silver or stone or art or imagination. He says the problem is that we have left God and we've treated him like an idol. And that's a really big problem. And the really big problem is this is we are supposed to approach God as the one who made the world, made everything, who gives life and breath and everything that is in it. And sometimes we want to approach him as if, well, he needs us. He'll wait around for us. I'm going to do my thing over here. And when I'm good and ready, God will be there waiting for me and he'll accept whatever I want to give him. I'll do whatever I want and he'll be fine with that. We take the true and living God and we act like he's going to come down to our level and he'll just listen to us and he'll do what we want and he'll uh, accept whatever we want to give him. He'll, He'll be fine with that. We can live our lives, live how we want to live and do whatever seems best to us and God will receive that. And this is where where Paul started in this. 
we don't sustain him. It's not as if we give him something that he needs as if he's sitting on the sideline. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you threw your breadcrumbs at me. I'm so sustained and appeased by that. See, the Apostle Paul is getting to the mentality of the Athenians that is so frequently our mentality. Is we make the true and living God and fashion him according to our imagination. We make him what we want him to be. And so then we come to him and approach him and say, well, he'll take whatever, right? I can do whatever, right? I can live how I want to live, right? It is only when we see God as the one who made the world, who made all things, who gives all things, who gives life and breath and everything that is in it, who determines the boundaries of nations, who is in full control of all things, that we then approach him as children who listen, submit, and respond. But when we don't have that view of God, we do not listen, submit, or respond. We look at God and put him in the box in the corner and go, well, he'll be there for me whenever I need him. Or he'll take whatever I'll, I'll give him. He'll be fine with whatever I do. And here's God going, no. That's not who I am. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who gives us life. But unfortunately, we've treated him like another God. Every human has walked away from him. Every one of us at some point or another, treat him like an idol. That he's there for us. He'll do what we want. And he'll be fine with what we give him. And I want you to notice that's the framework of what verse 30 says when he says, having overlooked the times of ignorance and that God now commands all people to repent. The point is not to say it was okay to be an idolatrous worshiper all the days of the past and now God's kind of had and won't take that anymore. That's not the point. But the point is, as he's brought out in this text, is that for the longest time we've lived in the darkness of following after those kinds of things. But God has removed the darkness. He has sent his son so that you know who he is and has commanded all people now to come back to him. You are his children, but you've gone far from him and you need to come back. He wants you to come back. He has intervened into the world and has informed the world that we need to come back. We wandered away. God has drawn near and he's calling you to come back, which leads then to the sixth truth. In verse 30, he says that God is calling for people to come back, commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Final point. There is a day when God is going to judge the world. Notice how he frames it. There is a fixed day when God is going to judge the world. Now, I'll stop here for a moment because sometimes we can get really troubled with our unknown God and say, oh, he's going to judge the world. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much we want, how deeply we desire a righteous God. 
who is going to judge the world in righteousness. I thought Tim Keller said this very well. This is the front end of a longer quotation where he just simply said, if there is no day of judgment, that is, to account for all the wrongs of the world that people have gotten away with, if there is no day of judgment to account for all the wrongs of the world that people have gotten away with, then what hope is there for the world? I mean, when you kind of get down to it, everybody believes that some of the worst people, whoever that definition is in the mind of somebody, they're going to get it at least after death. Everybody holds on that. Even those who are in the dark groping after elephants trying to explain this is how we come to God will say the worst of the worst of humanity are certainly going to receive some kind of justice and judgment. They aren't getting away with it. And that's what this person says is if they are, what hope is there? Everyone wants a day of judgment by a righteous God who will right wrongs, bring justice and vindicate. Because there's an awful lot of people getting away with an awful lot of stuff. And you've experienced it. You've had it happen to you. Probably over and over and over again. Just live life long enough. You'll have all kinds of unjust things happen to you. Unfair things. Wrong things. And there's no vindication. There is no justice. And that's what Paul is proclaiming. Paul is proclaiming that there is a day of judgment. And I want you to notice what he says at the end of verse 31. Did you catch how you can know that there will absolutely be a day for justice, vindication, and judgment that has been fixed by God? The resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a day fixed by God when he is going to deal with all the wrongs that have ever been committed. Those two are hooked together, he says. Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a day for righteousness and vindication and judgment. There is absolutely a day coming, which is why God is saying, I need you to come back before that happens. Because as much as I like to think about all of those terrible people out there who have done all those horrible things and all of those sins and all of those wrongs and they are really, really awful about how they've wronged me and I've never done that to anybody. Well. Hmm. Maybe I don't want that justice so fast yet. Sometimes the question is often asked if there is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? And the great answer is, do you want God to start with you? We're all together in this boat. And 
I like to think I'm so much better than them, but who have you hurt? Who have you wronged? Who have you dealt falsely with? Who have you lied to? Who have you mistreated? Or if we'll just use the standard of Jesus. We loved our neighbor as ourselves, right? A day of judgment's coming. And in the patience of God, he's asking for everybody to come back. A day when evil will be dealt with and a day that evil will be judged and things will be put to right and that day is fixed. Just as certain as Jesus rose from the dead, there is a day when that is fixed. And so let's pull this whole message together then. I think it is interesting that when he concludes with that, the response of the Athenians are like, well, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. Others hear about the resurrection and say, uh, you're crazy. Sound any different than today? Some people go, hmm. And some people go, resurrection? No. Can't have people raised from the dead. I know. That's what makes it amazing. I know. That's what makes me believe. Because something amazing did happen. And Paul's message is that he wanted people to know the unknown God. And to know who this God is. And I just want you to then conclude by thinking about this. So how do you think about God? These are the six truths that Paul wanted to give to these Athenians of how they should think about God, their view of God. And I want us to think about how we view God. And do we see ourselves in desperate need of God? When we read these things about the character of God, that he cannot be served as if he needs anything but gives life and breath and everything to all people, that he is in charge over the affairs of the world, that he is near to us so that we would seek him because he wants us to see him as see him as our father and us as his children who would return to him and that in him we live and move and have our very being and Come back because there is a fixed day in which the world will be judged as proven by the resurrection of Jesus. Do we not then desperately need him? If he is the one who gives life and breath and everything in it. Do we not need him because he made all things This is how Paul is trying to reorient our thinking is that we treat him like an idol of gold or silver or stone. When we think that God needs us, that he will wait for us, that he will just accept whatever we give him, whatever we want to do, or perhaps this is the most notable. That we think we can tell him the terms of our obedience We will tell him the terms of our obedience. Here is your book. I will do these, but not these. These I like. These not so much. These are good for me. These are not so good for me. We will tell him the terms of our obedience. The Apostle Paul is saying, you don't understand God when you think like that. You do not understand who this God is. 
You do not understand the power of God, the glory of God and the vastness of God, because everything completely depends on him. Not us. Completely upon him. So I will end with just two questions that I want to leave you with for the week. Number one. Since God has made the world and everything in it, and through him you live, breathe, and move, and through him you have everything, what should you do? I won't answer that for you. You tell me. If he made the world and everything in it, and through whom you live and breathe and move, and through whom you have everything, what should you do with that? Or to put that in a very simple way for your week. What will you do since God is the reason you exist? What are you going to do since God is the reason you exist? That is what he wanted these Athenians to understand. And I hope these truths will help you consider what you should do because you exist. Because there is a God who has made you and who has given you all things, life, breath, and everything in it. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, these are six powerful truths to remind us of who you are. And God, I pray that you would keep these truths firmly in our minds as we realize who we are before you and how great you truly are. And Lord, forgive us for how often we think of you like an idol. We conjure you to our imagination. Forgive us for thinking that you need anything from us or that you are served by us in any capacity or that you depend upon us. Forgive us for thinking that we can tell you the way things are or what the terms of our obedience will be. Forgive us for exalting ourselves and lowering you. And Lord, I pray that as you firmly keep these ideas in our mind, Lord, that we would be people who truly seek you and see your glory and power and to see how majestic you are. And Lord, help us to give thanks to you for all that we have. Thank you for giving us our lives. Thank you for giving us the very breath we just took. Thank you for giving us everything in this world. Thank you for giving us everything that we enjoy in this life. Thank you for our families, for our jobs, for our homes, for our physical blessings. Thank you for everything because everything comes from you. Thank you, Lord. And forgive us for when we forget it. And help us to be far more aware of how we need to serve you in the days ahead and submit our lives to you. Because you are the reason for all things in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to come to Jesus to see him as the one you need to give your life to. That God loves you so much that he's called for you to come back to him, to turn away from the sins. And to serve him faithfully as a child of God who has returned back to the fold. We encourage you to think about your situation, to turn from your sins, confess Jesus to be the son of God, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. These are the starting points in your response in coming to him with all of your heart. And we'd love to help you do that. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?